So have you ever had to write something serious? You know, something serious, maybe a, a signature on a, on a loan document, maybe a, a resignation letter or a thank you note or a, a condolence card, maybe a phone number for a snake removal company, you know, something important, something that you really needed. How about an academic paper? Have you ever had to write a serious academic paper? The following are actual titles of higher education academic papers that have been discovered here in just recent years. First one, for you, I don't know, I guess this is Potter stuff. Fantastic yeast and where to find them. The hidden diversity of dimorphic fungal pathogens. Okay, if you're not a Potter person. Anarchy. The Law and Economics of Pirate Organization. Yes, higher education at its best right there. You probably think this paper's about you. Narcissist perceptions of their personality and reputation. That's good. Okay. This one I don't even know what to do with. An analysis of the forces required to drag sheep over various surfaces. Important academic research there. Actually, I did read a little bit of that. It had something to do with the shearing process for sheep, so I don't know. Next one. The effect of having Christmas dinner with in-laws on gut microbiota composition. That could be legitimate. That could be important. And this one, Biebs, for you. A mathematical model of Bieber fever. The most infectious disease of our time question mark. Serious academic papers with not so serious academic titles, right? Sometimes you'll see stuff like that. But hopefully this week you're not going to be dragging any sheep across the deck of your in-law's pirate ship. Hopefully that you'll, you'll just have kind of a normal week. But, but all of us, at some point or another, we have to be serious about things, right? I mean, we have moments where we, we have to get serious about something. The story is told of an American author that traveled to a foreign country. He was going to be a, a part of, of a group meeting, and, and when he got there, he noticed that some of the nationals from the country, they were kind of off to the side, and, and they were kind of chanting something to themselves quietly, kind of under their breath. And they were saying, boga, boga. And they would just kind of keep repeating it, boga, boga. So the author asked somebody, what's the translation of that? And they said the translation is serious, serious. That meeting that they were having, they, their perception was that they needed to prepare by saying boga, boga, serious, serious. So what is the, the boga, boga things in your life? What is it that you are really serious about? Whatever you are most serious about in life, there is one thing that is more serious than all the other things in your life. There is one thing that actually defines who you are. You have to be serious about this, and you are serious about this. And it defines you. It impacts your family, your friends, your sports, your hobbies, your job, your education. It impacts your decisions. It impacts your reactions. It impacts your responses. This, this one thing impacts every single moment of your life. 
So, what is that one serious thing? Well, let's find out together. Apostle Paul, writing to his friends in a place called Philippi, says this to them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, let me just go ahead and say I know how that verse starts off, so let me be clear. The most serious thing in your life is not circumcision, okay? That's, that's not where we're going. But Paul says that for a purpose, and we're going to see that purpose in just a moment. Now, Paul's writing to his friends because he's, he's wanting them to understand there were some dangerous people in and around the church. In fact, just a, a little bit before this in his letter, he describes those people as dogs. He says they're evil workers, that they are the kind of people that promote false religion. They promote false religious rules. Now, why would Paul use strong language like that, calling people dogs? People who actually were probably members of the church. Why would he use language like that? We use language like that because what these people were doing is they were saying that Jesus wasn't enough, that you needed Jesus plus something else. You needed some of their religious traditions to add on to Jesus, and that's the only way that you can be saved. And that's a lie. That's false. And that's why Paul uses strong language. He wants them to understand that that it's dangerous and those things are not true. He's wanting people to understand that when it comes to the true salvation of the kingdom of God, that salvation can only come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. F.B. Meyer said that folks like that are pests around the Christian community. And then he goes on to describe them this way. Fanatical unbalanced and unable to distinguish between a part and the whole, magnifying some microscopical point in Christianity until it blinds the eye to the symmetry, proportion, and beauty of heaven's glorious scheme. That's a good word. Because it's it's not just in religion, right? You can cut the news on and someone is microscopically pointing out something and they are zoned in on that and they are missing the big picture. Paul says, be careful of people that do that. Be careful of people that, that don't catch a vision of the grand scheme of God's kingdom and God's heaven and God's salvation, but they always focus on the microscopical thing and they miss the big picture. The way Paul describes folks like this, they do good things for Jesus. They say good things about Jesus. They're, they're nice workers in the church. They, they serve the poor and the sick. But they are completely disconnected from the very purpose of God's kingdom. And that's not just bad. That's, that's dangerous. And why is it dangerous? It's dangerous because if we are not in God's word, we might be drawn away. We might be confused. We might be distracted. We might even be led astray if we're not building our confidence in God's grand scheme and keeping our focus on his truth. So how do you know if there's someone like that hanging out around you? F.B. Meyer helps us. He says this, if in our circle of friends there is one whose influence lowers the tone of our own life, who suggests and arouses thoughts and desires that tend to the gratification of the flesh, the tendency of whose conversation is towards the kitchen of our lower nature rather than to the observatory of our spirit life. 
It is our duty to be carefully on our guard and, if possible, to break off from familiarity and even acquaintance. So, who stirs you to the lower kitchen? I don't even know what that means. I just like it, you know. Who stirs you toward the, the lower kitchen? Who's, whose conversation stirs us toward the lower kitchen? We all know some folks like that. And, and Paul's advice here is don't, don't be their buddy. Don't be their, their pal. And in fact, there, there may be times that, that you need to steer clear of them. And there may be times that you need to rebuke them with grace. And there may be times that you need to lovingly help them see the error of their ways. But either way, we need to be on guard. On guard. So Paul gives the the three negative things. But then he balances, he counters with three positive things. And he introduces those three positive things like any of us would introduce something positive with a discussion on circumcision. That's how Paul introduces these positive things. Look again at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision. As we've said before, the circumcision was established by God with Abraham back in Genesis 17. It is a, a radical surgical removal that was designed to be a symbol and a vivid reminder to God's people that the eternal dangers of sin are real, but the eternal rescue and mercies of God are also real. And what these folks did was they took something that was established by God and they started using it in the wrong way. They started saying you had to have that in order to get saved, that you weren't really saved unless you also did their extra things. This is what Deuteronomy 10, 16 says. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. That's that's way back in the Old Testament. So Paul's not just shooting from the hip here when he says, look, don't listen to those people. You know, they're, they're telling you that Jesus is not enough. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament. See, the people who are really God's children are not the people that have been physically circumcised, but the people who have been spiritually circumcised. Those folks whose hearts have been transformed, they've been given a a new heart from God. Those are the true children of God. And God gives us a new heart, and then he begins to do something with that heart. And Paul kind of describes what happens in the heart of a new believer. He gives these three positive traits. We might even say these are, these are three, uh, three, three pictures of someone who's truly been saved or rescued. Again, here's the, the three dangerous ones. Dogs, evil workers, promoters of false religious rules. But then the positive ones are what? People who worship in spirit and truth, people who boast only in Jesus, and people who don't boast in themselves. Those are the marks that Paul gives. So let's just look at each one of these for, for just a moment. The first there, those who worship in the spirit of God. The Kennedy family, as you've seen in the news, has been through another a heartbreak this week in their family. Many years ago, Robert Kennedy traveled to the Amazon jungle, and he was in a, a conversation with a Brazilian Indian there and where he was, and, and there was a translator. And, and Kennedy, through the translator, said, I want you to ask him a question. Ask him what he enjoys doing the most. And, of course, he's thinking that you know, this man who lives in the Amazon jungle is going to say, well, you know, canoeing or, or hunting or something along those lines. But this was the man's response, being occupied with God. See, this man had just recently become a Christian. 
And so Kennedy thought, well, there must have been something lost in the translation. So he told the translator, he goes, I think something got lost. How about ask him the question again? What do you enjoy doing the most? And the man gave the same exact answer. Being occupied with God. That's what I enjoy the most. See, that's the, that's the boga boga. That's the serious, serious. That is the one serious thing in your life that defines who you are. That is the one serious thing in your life that impacts every single other thing in your life. What are you most occupied with? Or if we could put it in different terminology, who or what do you worship? Because who you worship, what you worship, defines who you are. It impacts every single part of your life. One day Jesus was talking to a woman. This woman had had a rough life. She had been in and out of a lot of relationships. Not one marriage failed, but five. The relationship she was in at the time, she was not even married to the man. People despised her. They gossiped about her. Her heart was dirty. Her, her heart was broken. She was a castaway and a cast out. And Jesus is talking to this woman, and, and she starts talking about worship. And this is what Jesus says to her, John 4, 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. See, this woman, she had heard some of them dog-like sermons. She had heard some of those messages all in the community about the religious people that said, if you want to get your life right, if you want to go to heaven, then you got to clean your act up, and you got to clean your act up exactly how we say you got to clean your act up. And this woman's life, man, she, she had a lot to clean up. But Jesus does this. He, he turns the conversation upside down for her. He says, true worshipers, people who are really right with God, are the ones that worship him in spirit and truth. He says those who are true worshipers are people who are devoted and surrendered and yielded to God. Not not just on Sunday morning, mind you. See, the, the conduct of our lives is the conduct of our worship. See, God is primarily looking for the conduct of our lives, not the conduct of, of how we do our worship services. God is primarily looking for the music of your heart, not primarily looking for the style of music that a church may sing. Our lives are our lives of worship, and our lives dictate what our worship really is. Ray Pritchard said that these dogs, they were singing this song, Jesus paid almost all of it. And that might have been their hymn, but that is not true worship. So what is true worship? Last week, we kind of noticed that it's an inner delight in God. It's an inner awe of God. It's an inner gratitude of God. It's an inner love for God. And that, that inner is also supposed to be outer, right? What's on the inside should come out on the outside. Gordon Dahl said this about our worship. Our problem is that we worship our work. We work at our play, and we play at our worship. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. Matt Redman is a well-known worship leader around the world. We sing some of his songs here on Sunday mornings from time to time. 
And somewhere in the late 1990s, the story is told that his pastor at his church in England began to, to kind of look around at the congregation. He said he just felt like that, that the church was just going through the motions on Sunday morning. Their hearts were not really gathering to worship and enjoy God. And so what he did was he, he, he shut down all the, all the sound system and all the music and all the instruments. And, and all they did was they would just gather and it was just them and they would sing together with, with no accompaniment in any way, shape, or form. This is what Matt Revin said about it. His point was that we lost our way in worship. And the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. So, I mean, what if we did that here? <laughs> what, if, what if we shut down all the instruments and, and quit using the sound system and, and no screens? What would happen? Well, let me offend this just a little bit, but hang in there with me, okay? Some of our older folks would get upset because we spent all this money on all these instruments and we're not even using it. Some of our younger folks would get upset because we're not using any instruments and it's boring and we're just standing there singing to each other like a bunch of losers. Some of us would feel awkward because we don't sing well. Some of us would feel awkward because we sing too loud. Some of us would be awkward because we sing too soft. But, but it would be awkward and, and some people would be upset. But let me also say this. I am so confident in how God is working in our church that if we were to do that, it would be awkward for maybe two or three Sundays. But I want you to know, I believe with all of my heart that after a few Sundays of awkwardness, this room would shake with a people happy in their God. That's what he's called us to. Hearts and minds that long to worship and enjoy him. And not just on Sunday morning, but, but all the time. Bob Coughlin is another well-known worship leader. He, he said this, God intends my relationships to bring him glory even more than my songs. Those closest to me should be able to see a connection between the way I speak and act in front of people on a Sunday morning and the way I interact with them at other times. Am I sensitive or caring? Am I unapproachable or inviting? Is the faith I exude on the platform evident when I'm going through a challenging season? Is my public passion for God's glory reflected in my private acts of purity, humility, and generosity? If not... My view of leading worship is not only narrow, but dangerous. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, <laughs> I'm not on stage. I'm not playing. I'm not in the choir. I'm not preaching. I'm not singing. So this has nothing to do with me. Listen to the words of Jesus one more time. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is looking and seeking for people who are worshiping Jesus on Sunday morning during the hymns and the praise songs. And God is looking and he's seeking people who are worshiping Jesus during rush hour traffic. And God, he's, he's looking and he's seeking for people that are worshiping Jesus on Thursday mornings in the doctor's office. 
And God is looking, he's seeking for people that are worshiping Jesus in the middle of a high school football game on Friday night. And God is seeking, he's looking for people who are worshiping Jesus in the middle of the home improvement store on a Saturday afternoon. Now, does that mean that you have to be singing songs about Jesus in all those places? No. It just means that no matter where you are, there is an inner delight, an inner awe, an inner love, an inner gratitude in the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. That your worship is your worship wherever you are and whatever you are doing. And why would you do that? Why would you want to be a worshiper outside of this room? Why would you want to be a worshiper of Jesus in traffic? Why would you want to be a worshiper of Jesus at the doctor's office? Why would you want to be a a worshiper of Jesus in the middle of a football game or or in the middle of a a tragedy? Here's why you would want to do that. Because your heart is convinced that God is holy, holy, holy. And your heart is convinced that he is infinitely worth every second of your life. And so it is your joy to be a worshiper of Jesus all the live long day. You know what activities those boga boga people were about to participate in? This, this huge group that had gathered to do something and they're waiting and preparing and they're over on the side saying, boga, boga, serious, serious. It was a church service. They, they had traveled by foot for miles to come and, and worship with God and, and all they could do in preparation was, was boga, boga, serious, serious. Their way of preparing for the worship of Jesus Christ for the the preaching of God's word, the way they prepared was they said, you know what, this is serious. God, pull my heart towards you. May the Lord strengthen us to worship him in spirit and truth. Paul gives a second characteristic. He says, and they glory in Christ Jesus. True believers glory in Christ Jesus. Stephen Cole said this, true Christians confess the only thing I'm great at is being a great sinner. But Christ Jesus is a great Savior. Your goal, my goal, it's it's important what our goal is. If your goal is to make a bigger deal out of you or our church or our denomination or your family or your job or your favorite sports team or, or whatever else it is, if your goal is to make a bigger deal out of anything but Jesus, then you're not truly worshiping. Because our goal has to be to glorify him and him alone. I love what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus said, you want to leave? You want to quit following? You want to go away with those that that are leaving too? This is what Peter said. John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, Peter's words matter in the doctor's office. Peter's words matter in traffic. Peter's words matter in a tragedy. See, the the reality that Jesus is the Holy One, it changes everything, and it changes our worship. 
Our goal as believers is to make a big deal out of Jesus all the time. All the time. Paul gives one more characteristic. He says, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what religion does. Religion will boast in itself and somewhere mix in God's name here or there in the sentence, but mostly it's a boast about self. That's what the dogs were doing. That's what the evil workers were doing. But true worshipers, they understand and they know that their story is bigger than them. This is what Paul told the folks at Ephesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're a Christian, then by grace you have been saved. By grace you've been saved. You weren't good enough. You weren't smart enough. You weren't moral enough. You weren't Baptist enough. You weren't American enough. You weren't Christian enough. You weren't enough. God didn't look at you and, yeah, you know what? Let's have that guy on our team. He seems pretty cool. God didn't look at you. You know what? Let's, let's invite her to the party. No. No, you, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. So was I. Separated from God, without hope in this world and without hope in the world to come. Some of you still are. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for you, because of his great love for you, when you were dead in your sins, made you alive in Christ by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. Boga, boga, serious, serious. By grace and only by grace have you been saved. Only by grace. So what is there to boast in except Jesus? John MacArthur said this, what is a Christian We could say he's a believer. What is a Christian? We could say he's a child of God. What is a Christian? We could say he's a disciple. We could say he's a follower. He is one who loves God. But how could we say it better than to say a Christian is one who worships in the Spirit of God, glories in Christ Jesus, and puts no confidence in the flesh? What a surpassing definition of the true Christian. So, I I just ask a simple question based on, on this definition from Paul that MacArthur points out. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Are you one that worships in spirit and truth? Are you devoted and surrendered to God in the pew and and in traffic? Do you glory in Christ alone? Do you boast about Jesus? Do you constantly stay stunned and amazed with what he has done in your life? And do you avoid every opportunity to boast in your flesh? Do do you avoid every opportunity to boast in who you are? 
I know I've taken some hits on social media. I'll take one more quick one. Be careful because social media is begging us to boast in ourselves, to boast in our family, to boast in our kids, to boast in our team, to boast in our views. And the more we boast in anything other than Jesus, the less we worship. So are you a Christian? Do you worship in spirit and truth? Do you glory and boast in Jesus? Do you run from boasting in yourself? If you're not a Christian, we plead with you to come to Christ today, to experience the joy of what it means to be in relationship with the one who is holy, 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 and the only one who can rescue you from every trial and trouble and tragedy in this life. And if you are a Christian, then I pray that tomorrow morning and Wednesday afternoon and Friday night and next Sunday, that a little more we would wake up and drive and walk and exercise and work and everything else we do, we would do with a little more boga boga. A little more serious, serious. Why? Because by grace, we have been saved. By grace, we have been saved.